Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. This part's so good that when I smoke it, the government freaks out. Hello to all my good buds out there. I'm glad you're listening. This is Cultural Baggage. My name is Dean Becker. We've got a jam-packed show for you featuring an interview with the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, Mr. Ethan Nadelman. We'll also hear from, I think, just about all our uh, Drug Truth Network reporters. And I've got a special name that drug by its side effect for you. But first, a couple of news items I want to share with you. This is from the uh, Washington Post. Marijuana can improve the effectiveness of drug therapy for hepatitis C, a potentially deadly viral infection that affects more than 3 million Americans, a study has found. The work adds to a growing literature supporting the notion that in some circumstances, pot can offer medical benefits. At the end of a six-month treatment, 86% of those who used marijuana had successfully completed the therapy, and only 59% of the non-smokers achieved that goal. Similarly, 54% of the marijuana users achieved a sustained virological response that compared with only 18% of those who did not smoke pot. And this is uh, according to the current issue of the European Journal of Gastroenterology and Hepatology. And our second news story from today's Reuters News Service. Good news for aging hippies. Smoking pot may stave off Alzheimer's disease. New research shows that the active ingredient in marijuana may prevent the progression of the disease by preserving levels of an important neurotransmitter that allows the brain to function. Researchers at the Scripps Research Institute in California found that marijuana's active ingredient, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, can prevent the neurotransmitter acetylcholine from breaking down more effectively than commercially marketed drugs. Meantime, the drug czar tours the country, saying there is no evidence that marijuana has medical benefits. These two studies contribute to the more than 120 such studies which indicate marijuana does indeed have medical properties. Hi, Dean. This is Ethan Nadelman. I'm executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a leading organization in the United States of people who believe that the war on drugs is doing more harm than good. Ethan, there's uh, always news uh, coming forward about the drug war, uh, a lot of bad news, occasionally some good news about uh, uh, a study that shows its uh, efficacy for uh, some medical ailment. But uh, it's rare that we get the chance to uh, debate the topic of uh, drugs and, in particular, uh, marijuana. But just recently, you and Rob Campia of the uh, Marijuana Policy Project had that opportunity, did you not? Well, you know, it was set up to be a debate um, with me and Rob on one side, and on the other side was going to be Andrea Barthwell, who is the 
former deputy drug czar under the, in the Bush administration, uh, who then has gone off and become a consultant for GW Pharmaceutical, which is producing a, a variant, a pharmaceuticalized version of medical marijuana. And the other one was David Murray. And I think it's important to point out, I mean, David Murray has sort of, you know, made a reputation as the sort of pit bull of the, uh, of the of the drug czar's office, he's the one who's out there offending and pissing off people wherever he goes. We actually regard him at this point as almost an asset. You know, when we have a medical marijuana bill happening in New Mexico or New Jersey, one of the best things that can happen for us is to have somebody like him come into the state because he lands up alienating so many legislators, including Republicans, that he takes people who are sitting on the fence and pushes them into our camp. And Andrea Barthwell, it's fair to say, has probably distinguished herself as one of the most um, dishonest and disingenuous people ever to serve in the federal drug czar's office, which is saying a lot. So I was really looking forward to the debate and was very disappointed when literally minutes before the debate was to start, uh, Andrea Barthwell pulled out. Uh, you know, I didn't see her there. Her lawyer was there and saying that he had recommended she pull out. Uh, they gave various excuses, like the fact that uh, DPA or MPP, you know, had a table to hand out materials, but obviously they could have done the same thing as well. So the debate was left with uh, Rob and I debating uh, this fellow David Murray. And uh, for a moment, I want to talk about Andrea Barthwell. She's now, as you say, working for GW Pharmaceuticals, promoting a uh, liquid cannabis product, if you will. And uh, and yet she says that the natural form of the cannabis is is still quite dangerous, so to speak. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, it's ludicrous. I mean, the claim itself is ludicrous, and I think you have to take it on two levels. I mean, one is that my feeling had always been that what GW Pharmaceutical and others are doing in trying to produce pharmaceuticalized versions of marijuana is a good thing, that, that we know that cannabis is an effective medicine. We know that it needs to be made available in multiple forms that for some people the fact that it needs to be smoked or that it's illegal is a problem and an obstacle to their using it. So that what GW Pharmaceutical is doing and what's been approved in Canada and I believe a few other places was a positive development. I have to say, however, that I was, you know, disturbed to see them hire Andrea Barthwell. You know, it's one thing for a company like GW Pharmaceutical, uh, you know, to hire people who are well-connected, good lobbyists, good, uh, good, but to hire somebody like Andrea Barthwell who was so over-the-top dishonest in her claims about medical marijuana, I mean, about needle exchange, about a whole host of issues, was, was a bit beyond the pale and I think, you know, made GW's efforts um, a bit more suspect. Maybe they thought they were being savvy and sophisticated by hiring a, a former top-level drug warrior. I don't know that it's played out that way for them. But even beyond that, Dean, there's also the arguments which Lester Grinspoon has put out there in various um, forums, probably on the web as well. And for your listeners, Lester Grinspoon is a distinguished professor emeritus from Harvard Medical School who's written many books about marijuana and other drugs. And he puts forward the many arguments why smoked marijuana or the whole marijuana you consumed in, you know, baked goods or what have you, is ultimately going to be preferable for many people compared to a pharmaceutical version like the GW thing, like uh, Sativix. So I would say have them both available, um, but that Barthwell's claims that this thing is significantly different or better than smoking marijuana or cooking it up in um, you know, some baked products is, is, is baseless. Now, uh, your, your comment about uh, you know, the efficacy of uh, smoked marijuana versus the, the 
manufactured products. I know of a couple of instances where uh, uh, a user found a particular strain that uh, whose effects were uh, most useful and appropriate for their condition. A couple that come to mind are Steve Cubby and his adrenal cancer. He's grown his own uh, California orange strain, I believe it is. And then there's a young gentleman, uh, Jeffrey, who uh, uh, he was eight years old, I believe, when he began using it. And the uh, DEA took his supply when they raided the, uh, the, the WAM facility out there in California. Y your thoughts are, do we not need that diversity? No, we, we absolutely need the diversity. But, you know, it's also worth saying that Steve Cubby, who's been a real hero of the movement to legalize marijuana, both for medicine and more, more broadly, and who was at one point the libertarian candidate for governor in California, um, when he was pushed forced to return to the United States and face charges, um, he publicly said that he was surprised to find that Marinol worked much better for him than he had expected. So, you know, the fact of the matter is this can work in all sorts of ways. We know that Marinol, for many people, is less effective. Marinol is the pharmaceutical version of marijuana that you swallow as a pill. So it's less effective for many people than either smoked marijuana or than the, the or sativics. But for many people, it will still work. You can't quite titrate your dose. It takes a while to come on. It will still knock you out as much or more so than smoked marijuana. Uh, but that's going to work for some people. It's interesting on the medical marijuana thing. Sometimes you need to reassure people about um, about age limits. And yet the case of Jeffrey that you mentioned, and I think there's a book about it, um, talked about this was a kid who was just having the most horrific struggles in school and everywhere else, you know, just out of the control in terms of behavior. You know, was various doctors had tried all sorts of pharmaceutical drugs on him with all sorts of side effects. And by some chance, um, his family figured out that marijuana seemed to be the thing that worked for him in a way that surprised a lot of people. And that he was actually, it didn't leave him a zombie, it didn't leave him high. It basically helped stabilize him in the way that some people have found that drugs like Ritalin or whatever um, help stabilize some kids who are, you know, can't sit still, can't, uh, can't focus. So, you know, when, when you're treating conditions of pain, of nausea, whatever, you know, you know, for some people, opioids or opioid drugs are going to be the key. For some, it's going to be cannabis. It's going to come in various forms. If you think about the treatment of pain, right, some people prefer morphine. Other people, it's methadone or Dilaudid or Demerol or fentanyl or whatever. Some people prefer the injection or a patient-controlled analgesic or an oral form or a skin patch or whatever it might be. It's going to be the same thing with cannabis. You need to have it available in, in a great variety of forms um, and of means of ingestion. Uh, and it's quite possible that as time goes on, that scientists will figure out which particular strains of marijuana are better for certain types of conditions. It's very nice to see that in a lot of the medical marijuana dispensaries that there's more and more expertise based upon trial and error, based upon not just folk wisdom, but feedback from thousands and thousands of patients about which types of marijuana seem to work better for various conditions. Uh, you, you mentioned the dispensaries. There has been a, an ongoing um, a series of raids on the uh, California coast uh, in the last week or two here. Um, how do you perceive that uh, situation? Well, you know... It, if you want to step back from this at multiple levels, I mean, at the most specific level, it's deeply upsetting that the feds are looking to pick off people who are involved in this stuff. 
Um, if you, you know, and, and they, they, they make life more difficult for patients. They, they prevent the sort of stabilization of this whole distribution system. If you step back an additional level, what you see is that most of the medical marijuana movement and the drug policy reform movement, and in fact a growing number of, of local elected officials and even law enforcement would like to regularize this system, would like to have it regulated, overseen by, you know, government authorities, state or local, what have you. And that the principal opposition to that is coming not from the medical marijuana community, although there are some growers who don't want any control. The principal opposition to regulation is coming from the federal government. Because the federal government has an interest, or I should say the Bush administration has an interest in keeping medical marijuana out of control, in keeping medical marijuana in a messy, gray area, dark area of the law where they can justify um, going after various people in this stuff. And so it's a paradoxical situation. You know, here it is, the reformers, the quote-unquote legalizers, who want to see government regulation, want to see a good control system, and it's the feds who want to keep this thing a mess. Um, you know, that's what we're trying to fight against. That's why we're trying to win more and more state laws to legalize marijuana for medicinal purposes. And that's why, you know, my organization and Marijuana Policy Project and Normal and Americans for Safe Access and others are also working to try to change federal policy in this area. Once again, we are speaking with Mr. Ethan Nadelman. He's the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. Ethan, I uh, did get a chance to see the transcript of that debate, and I'm trying to garner a copy of the audio, but I did see uh, several instances where um, the words spoken by Mr. David Murray uh, generated laughter and uh, untoward responses to to his statements. Your, your thoughts, sir, what was the general reception? Well, you know, I'll tell you, I'm always a bit surprised. I mean, by and large, the, the, the whole drug czar's office, those guys will virtually never come out and debate. Um, and I'm stunned, actually, that they were willing to come out this time in medical marijuana because it's one thing to say you want to debate, you know, the issue of methamphetamine or you want to debate the issue of drug testing in schools. You want to debate, you know, where, where, you know, I mean, I would argue our arguments are stronger than theirs, but there are real debates there. But to argue the issue of medical marijuana, I mean, for Murray to go up there and say there's no evidence that marijuana is effective for medical purposes, and on that day in the Washington Post is a report on a most recently published scientific study that smoking marijuana improves compliance with, uh, with uh, hep C medication. I mean, it was just the bold lying um, was just what's so kind of breathtaking in a way. And I think what happens is these guys get used to not being challenged, you know, going and doing their own little press conference, putting out their press releases, insisting that if they're going to be on the media that they not be set up in a debate format, that it only be done with them individually. So they get used to repeating the big lie over and over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden they go into a public place, and in this case a public place where a majority of the audience was probably sympathetic to, you know, medical marijuana and the reform argument, and they say the same old big lie, and people burst out laughing. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, so, uh, a senior person in the government says things, you know, you know, it's like people insisting, you know, the world is flat in 2006, and that's why people were laughing. Uh, there are several um, measures on the ballot across the country, a lot of... Uh adult uh, access, uh, police, lowest law enforcement, and uh, in a couple of states to legalize one ounce. And uh, the polls show it kind of running neck and neck. 
that uh, there's a good chance some of these will get passed. Uh, a lot of people recognize that hypocrisy, that mm -hmm. BS being put forward by the government these days, right? Well, I think it's clearly the case. I mean, what you find is that, you know, if you, a lot of it, Dean, is about the way the, 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 the issue and the question is framed. I mean, just for example, if you ask Americans if they want to decriminalize marijuana, maybe 40-something percent will say yes. If you ask Americans, what about a policy where people um, get arrested, if we get arrested for marijuana, don't go to jail, they just pay a fine and it's a treated sanction. In other words, give them the definition of decriminalization without giving them the word, you get 75% saying yes. You know, it's the same thing. If you ask American people, would you support legalizing marijuana, maybe 30% will say yes. If you say, would you support making marijuana legal, Right, so drop the the Z, the legalize, something about that Z. Thirty-five, thirty-six percent will say yes. If you then say, how about treating marijuana like alcohol? Let's tax it, control it, regulate it, try to keep kids out of trouble. Forty-one percent say yes. So every one of those questions is the same. Should you make marijuana legal, right? But the way you frame the question, the way you say it, is going to affect how people respond. What we know is that increasingly Americans think that the war on marijuana, the criminalization, is not an intelligent use of resources. We do not yet have a majority in favor of making it a legal commodity like alcohol or cigarettes. But I think the momentum is on our side, notwithstanding the fact that the government has a thousand, ten thousand times the resources we do. And speaking of those resources, they keep getting caught with their... Uh hand in the cookie jar, these, these ads are not working, the, uh, the, the numbers used to uh, justify treatment are really just referrals from law enforcement. Uh, what can the, the average Joe out there do? How can they get involved? How can they uh, stand against this inquisition? Well, look, I mean, you, if you look at which are the powerful advocacy groups in society, oftentimes they're led by powerful national associations. Look at the National Rifle Association with millions of members. Look at AARP. You know, the ACLU has become a powerful organization with hundreds of thousands of members. Uh, you know, you look at the groups on either side, whether it's on the, uh, you know, the pro-choice or the anti-choice side. You know, they're out there. What we need to do is to build organizations. I mean, I'm especially thinking my own organization, Drug Policy Alliance, but also the other ones, that, you know, the Marijuana Policy Project and the Normals and the Harm Reduction Coalitions and Americans for Safe Access and others, people need to join and sign up with these things. They need to send a few dollars if they can afford it. They need to be on the email list. They need to be ready to contact the local newspapers or local legislators. They need to be informed when they call talk radio. It's deciding that, that changing the war on drugs, ending the war on drugs, is going to be an increasingly important priority in your own life and doing and giving whatever you can toward that end. And the first thing is to remember, you know, that, that being informed, being educated, knowing more than your opponents know is probably the strongest and most powerful thing you can do. The second thing is to remember that advocacy is not just about telling people what you think. It's also about thinking about how you get people to change their minds, how you find the right words and ways and impressions and images to get people to do that. So I think that's what's going to ultimately change this thing. Once again, that was Ethan Nadelman, the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. They're on the web at drugpolicy.org. 
It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Also may cause you to think you can sing. It may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. It may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for stop hiding and start living with tequila you know with just a half hour show it's hard to uh, include this each time but we offer twelve hundred dollars cash money to any drug warrior willing to come on this show and defend the policy of drug prohibition we've been on the air for about five years now no one's ever even nibbled at the offer so we produce this following piece on their behalf cowards Forget about the drug war. Let's talk about the real issue, liberty. You see, the idea that we should end the drug war is usually based on the idea that the drug war infringes upon individual liberty, and it does. So the question becomes, is there a historical precedent for the government to infringe upon individual liberty if it serves the greater good? And the answer is an emphatic yes. The government has crossed this line constantly and consistently throughout our nation's history. In 1927, the Buck versus Bell Supreme Court ruling upheld forced sterilization for women deemed unfit to reproduce. This is a clear violation of individual liberty, but because it was done for the greater good to, quote, protect the health of the state, it was a good thing. In 1964, the Gulf of Tonkin incident was used as a pretext to escalate our involvement in the Vietnam War, which claimed the lives of 58,000 American soldiers. It has recently been declassified that the incident never happened. The government lied, but again, because it was for the greater good, their actions were acceptable. The Tuskegee experiments, the incident at Waco, the Patriot Act, the list goes on and on. Sometimes, liberty must take a back seat to what is good for America. The drug war is just one more example. The government understands this fact and is ready to protect you at the cost of your liberty. And it's good. What a blessing the government is. This has been Winston Francis with the official Government Truth. Terry Nelson spent 32 years working for the U.S. government as a customs border and air interdiction officer. He retired last year as a GS-14, the equivalent of a bird colonel. This is Terry Nelson speaking on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Prohibition of drugs and its related fallout is doing irreparable harm to our nation's youth. Approximately 1.9 million juveniles have been arrested in the past 10 years. Our nation encourages a get-tough policy to stop kids from making these mistakes. And when the get-tough policy does not work, they propose stricter enforcement to deal with the problem that just will not go away. So in effect, the policy does not work, so we'll just keep doing it anyway because we just can't figure out what else to do. An example of what not to do is an otherwise good kid making good grades, active in school activities, causing no major issues, is arrested for possession. How do we handle this kid? Well, the current method is to send a message that this behavior will not be tolerated and punish the kid to the extent that the law allows. The kid will be sent to a type of reform school, separated from all their friends, prohibited from participating in school activities, as this might send the wrong message to others, and basically just complicate the dickens out of the kid's life. So one mistake by the kid 
is compounded by many mistakes by the adults trying to deal with the issue. And the loser is, you guessed it, the kid. It seems to me that a better way of dealing with this problem is through counseling and peer support groups, much as it is held at the university level. But absolutely do not take the kid away from the, their base support and throw them into a reform school setting. And do not take them away from the good, positive things in their lives. These kids are not committing serious crimes. They are experimenting with life. The only crime they are committing is one imposed by the government's failed public policy called the drug war. The government takes something that is natural in the universe, makes it a prohibited substance, and then punishes its citizens for using a natural substance. LEAP does not condone or encourage drug use, but we do know that the three decades plus war on prohibition is a total policy failure and that it is doing much more harm than good. LEAP does believe that total legalization regulation of production, and control of the distribution of these substances is the way forward. Legalization will remove the criminal element, lessen the instances of death, disease, and crime and addiction, and the multitude of unintended consequences, such as destroying a kid's life but giving them a felony record or introducing them to an environment of violent offenders. Credible education programs work, and those that have used drugs must receive treatment, not incarceration. It is up to us to ask the tough questions of our elected officials and listen carefully to their answers. It's time for a change. Let's work together for a better future for ourselves and our children. This is Terry Nelson at www.leap.cc, signing off. This is Phil Smith of the Drug War Chronicle with this week's Krupp Cop Stories for the Drug Truth Network. This week we have them at every stage of the criminal justice process, from arrest to guilty plea to sentencing. For a pair of greedy, wheeling wheeling dealing cops in St. Louis and Miami, the ride to the criminal justice townhouse is just getting started. A former St. Paul cop has just copped a plea, and now former cops in Connecticut and Hawaii are heading to prison. I'll tell you about the folks in, in St. Louis. Uh, in St. Louis, a suburban Hillsdale, Missouri police officer was indicted in an elaborate cocaine distribution conspiracy, uh, according to a press release from the Office of the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri. Hillsdale Police Sergeant Christopher Cornell conspired with a tow truck company operator to rip off drug dealers and resell their cocaine, the feds charged. The tow operator would set up drug runners to deliver coke in Hillsdale and then notify Cornell, who would stop them and jail them for minor violations, leaving their cars at the roadside. The towing company would then tow the cars, steal the drugs, and resell them. U.S. Attorney Catherine Hannaway estimated that the scheme had brought in $2.4 million in profits. The indictment also seeks the forfeiture of Cornell's property, including the Mercedes-Benz and other cars. As always, there are more corrupt cop stories. Check them out online at www.stopthedrugwar.org. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. In 2001, Afghan opium production was 185 tons. Now, after five years of Western occupation, annual production has surpassed 6,000 tons. Three million farmers in Afghanistan now cultivate opium poppy, potentially providing enough black market heroin to satisfy this year's entire world market, with an additional 30% reserve. UN drug czar Antonio Maria Costa warned the world's health authorities this week that they should prepare for a significant increase in the number of deaths from heroin overdoses due to Afghanistan's dramatically surging opium industry. Former U.S. drug czar General Barry McCaffrey 
urges aerial eradication of the poppy crop, telling the Pentagon, quote, if you don't take on drug production, you're going to get run out of Afghanistan, end quote. Crop dusting the fields has been strongly resisted by both the Pentagon and Afghan authorities. This week, NATO's ongoing Supreme Commander, U.S. General James Jones, called the illegal drug industry, quote, the Achilles heel of Afghanistan, end quote. Finally, and most remarkably, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist said this week that the Afghan war cannot be won militarily and called for the Taliban to rejoin the government. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. Well, the truth is out there waiting to be your servant the moment you put it to use. And as always, I remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Tap dancing on the edge of the canopy. <laughs>